Welcome to the Brain Pal Podcast. We're on a mission to improve the world through neuroscience. This is your host, Devin Rome, and today I'm with James Cavuto. James runs Neurotech Reports, which he founded in 2001 and has run for 21 years. He earned a bachelor's degree in biomedical engineering from Case Western and a master's degree in human factors engineering from USC. Leading thinker and figure in the world of neurotech and biotech. And today I'm very excited to talk to him about the neurotech landscape the latest news, and what you need to know about the neurotech industry. Okay, James, do you think that covers your background pretty well? And are you ready to get started? Yeah, ready. Thanks for having me. Yep, I'm excited for this. All right, so first let's do a brief background, brief walkthrough of your background. So you went to Case Western and USC. Uh, can you share a little bit about uh, what you studied and what you did there? Yeah, so I was um, an undergraduate at Case Western Reserve University and one of the first uh, classes in the biomedical engineering degree program there, there were not um, many schools offering a, a full degree program in biomedical engineering when I was a high school senior. Uh, so I didn't have uh, lots of choices. I grew up in Western New York and uh, looked at a few schools, but really liked the program at Case Western, liked the fact that they had uh, a dedicated staff um, wasn't shared with other departments. Uh, they had some pretty uh, leading edge people. And lo and behold, many years, or shall I say decades later, um, they're still top rated, uh, one of the top rated undergraduate schools and also you know, graduate programs uh, in biomedical engineering and, and, and in neural engineering in particular. Very interesting. And then that led you to USC. Can you talk about the decision to go and get your master's yeah, degree. Actually, I didn't, I didn't leave. That was kind of a, a diversion. So, so uh, when I graduated, uh, the field was really new, and there were not a lot of uh, uh, job opportunities in biomedical engineering. Um, thought about graduate school, but also decided I wanted to get out of the cold and go to the West Coast. Um, and I was involved uh, in writing and editing. I was the editor of our college engineering and science magazine, which was called engineering and science review, uh, gave me a little bit of experience. Um, I don't want to say in journalism, but at least in writing and editing. And I enjoyed it and, uh, did some, actually did some science writing. Uh, after I graduated, there was a new magazine called Omni magazine. And there was a magazine called uh, science 80 that was published, uh, at least for a while by the uh, AAAS, the American association for the advancement of science. See, so around, I, when was this out of curiosity? Oh boy, you're gonna you're gonna force me to date myself here. Uh, this was um, 1979 when I graduated, uh, 1980 uh, time. So I moved out to the West Coast, got a job at Hughes Aircraft Company. Actually, worked in aerospace because yes. uh, uh, they were looking for any kind of engineer. <laughs> they didn't care that I was a biomedical engineer, and they they wanted an engineer who could write. Uh, so I uh, really never worked today as an engineer. I, I was. Uh, uh, classified as an engineer, member technical of the staff at Hughes, uh, but they used me on publications uh, originally on doing proposals, and then I was able to get a job with corporate communications and was one of the editors of their external magazine, which was called Vectors. It was a science magazine. It was a lot of fun, and um, you know, great job for a kid right out of school. So uh, I did that for a couple of years, and then I got hired as the editor of a new magazine in the laser industry. So I worked in lasers and optics uh, for a few years, got to meet some really interesting people, including the inventor uh, of the first laser, Dr. Ted Maiman, who uh, unfortunately passed away a few years ago. 
um, but also gave me an opportunity to see some of the new applications uh, that lasers um, uh, were bringing to the world, including in reprographics. And so that got me into the field of uh, uh, electronic publishing, laser printers, scanners, et cetera. I wrote a book in 1985 called Laser Write It. It was about the first Apple laser writer and and the uh, PostScript language and and uh, uh, decided, wow, this is interesting. So I quit my job and and um, started a publication in the uh, what we called the microcomputer publishing field. There was not a term yet called desktop publishing, yeah. uh, but we were in that field. Um, and I want, to, I want to clarify something uh, both for myself and for the audience. So these were these were microcomputers, but those were the the giant desktops with floppy disks and whatnot. No, a microcomputer is what we called, you know, what you'd now call a desktop PC, yes. uh, an Apple. Uh, yes. The Mac had just come out in '84, '85. I actually had one of the first. Uh, Apple sent me one to while I was working on the book. They also sent me one of the first, an alpha version of the laser writer, which mm. was which was great to have. So I had an early Mac and an early laser writer. I also had an IBM PC, um, and um, we started a newsletter yes. uh, called Micro Publishing Report, and then we started a couple of magazines, and then we started a, the first uh, digital uh, photography magazine, and. Uh, was a fun field to, to be in yes. but ended up um, selling the publications in the nick of time uh, just mm. before the dot-com crash not because I was smart and saw it coming but because I was damn lucky <laughs> and um, um, uh, when I um, sold the publications I had a five-year non-compete and uh, I was okay with that because I was ready to do something else so I went back to Cleveland. <laughs> I call it my Rip Van Winkle moment because 20 years had passed since I had graduated from Case. And, mm. and uh, you know, I wanted to see, wow, so what's what's been happening in the field since I left? And so my old professors were there, Tom Mortimer and Hunter Peckham, uh, who were really two of the pioneers in, in uh, neurotechnology uh, and in neuroprosthetics. And they said, wow, a lot has happened. And so they hooked me up with Warren Grill, who was a new assistant professor there. He's now at Duke University. Uh, and he helped us get the new publication launched, the publication uh, we called uh, Neurotech Business Report. And mm. uh, that was in 2000, well, 2000, 2001. And now it's 21 years later, and we're still publishing that newsletter, uh, as well as a new publication we launched last year called the uh, Bioelectrics Business Report, which covers the related field of bioelectronic medicine. So we have two newsletters, mm. and uh, we also produce two conferences, one in the fall in San Francisco, one in the spring in New York, uh, the Neurotech Leaders Forum in San Francisco, and the Bioelectronic Medicine Forum in New York um, in the spring. So uh, we're a small organization, but it's been a fascinating uh, time. Um, I see covering the industry i see it certainly looks at looks like it now one question i was going to ask and i think you answered it pretty well i was going to ask so what made you decide on editing and writing over uh, academia or maybe private research it sounds like it was mainly uh, one interest and two uh, uh probably a lot more opportunities uh, for what you wanted to do it sounds like yeah that's a good question and you know you gotta remember sometimes when you're 
21, 22 year old, <laughs> you're not always uh, making the best decisions. But, but um, you know, I was fascinated by the field of biomedical engineering, but it was new at the time. And I had thought about, okay, do I want to get into um, research and be, you know, spend the rest of my life as a researcher? Um, or do I want to be a teacher? Or do I want to just get into industry? Or do I want to just uh, be a writer editor and my feeling was I would you know I'd be happy to be a researcher and dedicate my life to research but only if I could make a significant contribution I didn't want mm. to be one of those professors who you know teaches and writes an occasional paper I I, I, I wanted to make a fundamental uh, contribution to the field of neuroscience or neural engineering and if I couldn't um, then you know there's lots of other stuff I could do and so one of the other stuff. Well, it I sounds could, like a bit of a yearning for leadership. Move to the West Coast and get out of the snow. Okay, so, yep. so I did that. I did so that. It sounds like a bit of that and also a, a yearning for leadership, right? Oh, that's that's a very flattering way of, of, looking, of looking at it. Um, you know, like I say, mostly uh, I wanted to, you know, do something more productive, but also, like I said, get out to the West Coast. So that that kind of brought me there. And Hughes was uh, good enough to send me out on an interview right after graduation and offered me a job. So I see. Uh, that's, that's how that started. I see. Very interesting. Now, uh, this is a pretty big, so to speak, question, or a question that could have varied answers. How would you say, uh, for people who might be majoring in biotech, or fields related to biotech, how would you say the job market now compares to the job market uh, for this same group back in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, well, clearly the job market is is much <laughs> more expanded because yeah. back then the field was so new, there really weren't any jobs. I mean, you could, I guess, go to graduate school and teach or maybe you could get a job at a hospital. I didn't want to do that. Uh, but now there's all kinds of opportunities. If you have a biomedical engineering degree, or even if you're, you know, in a related field in the life sciences, um, you know, with or without a graduate degree. So um, definitely, there's a lot of opportunities. But, uh, you know, if I could offer advice, you didn't ask for it, but I tend to I tend to offer it anyway. <laughs> you, you know, if you're uh, if you're in college and finishing up these days, and you know you've got a field that you're really interested in, and and you want to pursue it, you know that's great. If you've got the opportunity to take a job with a company or with a research institution or with you know a graduate program that furthers your education and experience, and it's along the lines of what you want to do, great. Um, but if not, if you know, if those, if that perfect job doesn't materialize, or that perfect opportunity doesn't materialize, there's just so many other ways uh, of getting into either a related field or getting into something completely different, and then finding your way back to what you're really interested. In many years later, uh, um, you know, as I did with my uh, Rip Van Winkle experience. Yes. Yes, that makes some sense. All right. Now jumping back to you. Uh, so you, let's see, let me take a look at my notes here. So, uh, you ran these three magazines uh, for about 13 years. You sold them to Cygnus and then it looks like about three years after that, uh, that's about, let's see, you sold to Cygnus and you had a five-year non-compete 
And how long was it after that before you started Neurotech Reports, approximately? It was almost, um, well, Cygnus offered me a two-year contract mm -hmm. uh, to stay on. After one year, they sent a vice president out to play golf with me. And on the ninth hole, they said, Jim, we don't need you to come in anymore. And I was, I was astounded. I said, what do you mean you don't need me? Yeah. And he said, why do you care? We're still going to pay you. You have a two-year contract. Nice. <laughs> so I had a year. Yeah, it, it took me a while to realize, hey, maybe that's not such a bad thing. You know, okay, I guess I could, I guess I could do that, get paid and not do anything yeah. <laughs> so, not, a, not a bad gig yeah so that's a you know when i started to think about okay well what's next and um you know traveled to a couple of conferences in the neurosciences and went back to cleveland and met my you know former professors and decided well this is certainly not competitive and um kind of brings me full circle to to uh, and they need a publication so I'll go ahead and start it. So that's what I did. I see. Now, the neurotech industry is quite interesting to me right now, uh, but I'm curious what was going on in the early 2000s that really piqued your interest and made you want to say, okay, I'm going to dedicate a lot of my time and yeah. uh, assume some money to doing this uh, report, this, uh, this website great, journal. Great question. Uh, what really piqued my interest back then um, was the tremendous advances in neuroprosthetics and 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 you know my alma mater uh, Case Western Reserve was one of the leading places doing work in um, functional electrical stimulation, which is to say using neurotech d devices and using neurostimulation to restore function, lost function. Uh, cochlear implants were relatively new. They were FDA approved and on the market. Thousands of deaf people uh, had them at the time, but of course you know, the, they kept getting better and better. Um, but there was also work being done to restore function to paralyzed people. And when I was in Cleveland in 2000, 2001, um, there was a meeting of the International uh, Functional Electrical Stimulation Society, IFES, in Cleveland at the time, which I got to go to. And there I met uh, a woman named Jennifer French. And Jennifer French uh, would later become, you know, one of my partners in Neurotech Reports and co-author on, on a book and, you know, uh, helped on the publication. Um, and she she was uh, the first woman to be implanted with an FES system. She had been paralyzed in a um, snowboarding uh, accident just a couple of years prior to my meeting her. Uh, and she was there speaking as a user. And it was uh, just a fascinating story. And, and I was, you know, I was amazed by the technology and I was amazed by the perseverance of this young woman who decided, no, I'm not going to necessarily spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair, even though they told me that's what would happen. And she looked for clinical trials that she could participate in. And one was uh, the uh, uh, FES Center at, at, at uh, the Cleveland FES Center, which is affiliated with uh, uh, Case Western Reserve University. So she became the first woman to be implanted with this system and was able to stand up out of her wheelchair using impl electrodes implanted, uh, you know, in her muscles. And that was, uh, it was an impressive uh, demonstration. So, so things like that were um, really motivating for me, you know, the opportunity to restore people with disabilities, whether it's, you know, deafness or blindness or paralysis or, 
debilitating diseases like Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or ALS, uh, to be able to, to, to help people um, using new technology um, really caught my interest. And if there was, you know, a way that I could play a role and help spread the word and help, you know, put entrepreneurs and researchers together with funding organizations or, you know, with commercial firms or venture capital firms, uh, then great. So we've tried to do that over the years and, and it's been fulfilling. I see. Covers it pretty well. Pretty interesting. Now, remember the, I remember when I first discovered Neurotech Reports myself, I was just Googling Neurotech and I found it. So it looks like you guys uh, do a lot of things besides just uh, publishing. Can you talk about some of the products and services one can find uh, from Neurotech Reports? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, we started you know, with the newsletter and then we um, also launched the conference, uh, the Neurotech Leaders Forum, be our 22nd year the, this year. Anyone who's listening who wants to attend uh, it's november 7th and 8th in san francisco and of course for people who are still dealing with covid well we will have zoom participation as well um but um in addition to our conferences we've uh, uh done some market research so we publish market research reports on a number of fields that are related to neurotechnology and and bioelectronic medicine um and uh, we've also uh, begun a consulting practice uh, for uh, either vendors or uh, startup firms or uh, investors or government agencies or research institutions who who want to delve you know more deeply or have specific um, market intelligence needs that we can help them with. So I have two uh, wonderful colleagues, Jeremy Koff, who's in Los Angeles, uh, and Jojo Plot, who's in um, San Francisco. And so the three of us, uh, um, in addition to, you know, helping on the newsletter and the conferences, uh, uh, help uh, clients in their uh, commercialization efforts for neurotechnology. I see. Sounds pretty cool. And we can find that at uh, neurotechreports.com, right? Well, thanks for the plug. Yes, www.neurotechreports with an S.com. Mm -hmm. Okay, very cool. All right, so this leads well to the next question. So we covered uh, this a little bit already, but we let's talk about uh, the neurotech uh, industry now versus about when you founded it in 2001. We talked about the job market a bit already, but how would you say, how does the industry look different now uh, compared to maybe back yeah. when we started? Industry's changed dramatically uh, over the 20 years we've been 20 plus years we've been covering the the market. Uh, back then, you know, there was one major player, it was Medtronic, and a couple of other uh, players off to the side, a couple of other public companies. There was Cyberonics, uh, which is relatively new, uh, that had been public out of Texas. There was Cochlear Limited, the Australian manufacturer of cochlear implants. Um, but and there were a few startup companies, but not a lot in between, right? So you had uh, a small number, a small handful of major, you know, publicly held uh, medical device manufacturers. You know, a growing number of startup companies looking for funding, <laughs> um, and and funding was pretty scarce in those early days, right? 
but not much in between those two. And these days, today, you have just a wide spectrum of public companies, medium-sized companies, uh, and startup companies, as well as research institutions that have spun off a number of successful uh, startups, both public and private uh, uh, research institutions. Um, the Elman Foundation in Los Angeles, for instance, or, or the, you know, the FES Center at Case Western Reserve University spun off a number of, uh, uh, of startups uh, uh, in this space. So definitely that's a lot more mature, which means there's a lot more opportunities for people uh, in the industry, uh, a lot more opportunities for people who want to pursue research or graduate study um, in, in the field or, or people who want to work in government uh, as a regulator or in, uh, in uh, reimbursement. Uh, so it's it's really become a much more vibrant uh, uh, industry that's branched out in a number of ways, uh, including non-healthcare applications. There's a growing, uh, you know, contingent of consumer neurotech companies, companies pursuing wellness uh, or sports training uh, applications, um, educational applications. So neurotech is definitely. Uh, spread its roots in the time that we've been covering the field. I see one second, the cat feeder is going off. I'm gonna pause for just a sec. The cat feeder, okay. Yeah, they get they get fed on a specific schedule, otherwise they, <laughs> they come at me. Okay, all right, let's go back. Okay, all right, so we're gonna start from where we left off. Sure. Okay, all right, so, uh, James, uh, what is the FES or what, is, what does FES uh, stand for? FES stands for Functional Electrical Stimulation. Mm. And the FES Center, the Cleveland FES Center, which is part of Case, the Case Western Reserve University, uh, a group of uh, investigators pursuing applications of neurotechnology for um, you know, treating paralysis, let's say, or treating other... Um, disorders, neurological disorders, um, and uh, using a variety of, of techniques. So they've attracted some, some pretty talented uh, researchers, um, investigators, uh, professors um, at that particular um, institution. I see, that sounds pretty exciting. So uh, within the industry, are there any particularly interesting uh, companies or maybe uh, sub-markets within the industry that you are finding uh, pretty exciting so far? Well, there's a lot. Um, you know, right now, one of the more, uh, I guess, interesting segments of the industry is what we call BCI or brain-computer interface, right? Um, when Elon Musk got into the field, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, attracted a lot of media uh, attention. Of course, there were companies pursuing BCI uh, years before uh, Elon Musk got into uh, the field, or uh, Brian Johnson, who's another internet entrepreneur who decided, "I want to get into, I want to get into uh, neurotechnology." Uh, a company in Utah called uh, BlackRock Neurotech has been pursuing applications. In fact, they're responsible for implanting. Um, uh, brain-computer interfaces in human uh, uh, users, end users, 
more than any other firm uh, has. A lot of the firms who are just starting have, you know, maybe one or two or just a handful. Uh, and BlackRock has dozens over the years using um, their implanted uh, device, uh, brain, brain device, which is a 10 by 10 uh, array of microelectrodes that are implanted into the cerebral cortex. Um, and, uh, you know, paralyzed individuals are able to use this to control a prosthetic device or a robotic arm or to control their wheelchair or to turn the lights on. Um, and, uh, um, you know, where they're going with this is to integrate brain computer interface uh, with functional electrical stimulation so that it's a more natural means of controlling that uh, paralyzed arm or robotic arm or robotic leg uh, so that people who uh, uh, have disabilities um, like paralysis or amputations uh, are able to have many of their functions restored. I see. So it sounds like there are quite a few uh, businesses and organizations working on some uh, very meaningful and interesting projects within the space. All right, so uh, the next question for you is, uh, what would you say or maybe your, like, where do you want Neurotech reports to be about maybe one year from now and uh, about maybe five years from now? We don't, I don't need your exact plans, but where do you see Neurotech reports going? You know, that's a great question, and a lot depends on where the industry is going, right? Um, a lot will depend on to what extent consumer applications become the next big thing, right? Um, and and people have, you know, made these claims. I've spent many years in the tech industry, right, um, in the computer industry, writing for computer publications, and we had our own. And, you know, the... The key uh, driving force back then was the killer app. You got to find the mm. killer app. And so, with respect to consumer applications of neurotechnology, you know, a lot of people think, well, we're still looking for that killer app, whatever that is. Um, but I do think that 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 field is going to grow. Um, that there's going to be, you know, applications of neurotechnology outside of. Um, outside of healthcare applications that we don't know about today, that are gonna emerge, that are gonna spread like wildfire, just like those first you know, laser printers drove uh, sales of desktop publishing software, right? Who had ever heard of Aldous PageMaker or Adobe Photoshop or, mm. or you know, Xerox Ventura Publisher? Well, you know, the low cost laser printer and the scanners, you know, and, and graphic displays, those hardware functions created this whole new uh, software uh, industry. And I think something similar could happen uh, on the consumer side here. We have new hardware, whether it's, you know, implanted or whether it's non-invasive wearable devices um, could very well lead to applications that nobody's thought of yet. And um, we'd certainly want to be, be around that. And if we can have a play a role in that, great. But also just continuing to do what we've done for the last 21, 22 years, which is, um, you know, playing the role of the uh, independent observer, right? Um, the neutral player, um, uh, reaching out to the industry to, to help address industry issues, 
but also to help uh, the patient communities um, get realizable, you know, viable uh, solutions to their unmet medical needs. I see. All right, that leads well to uh, one of my final questions. So uh, a lot of people that follow me and people that are in my audience, they're either uh, psychology or neuroscience or, uh, or bio uh, students or majors that are interested in the field. And I myself, I'm finishing up my uh, neuroscience degree. So what would you say, uh, what would you recommend for people who might want to work in the neurotech field? Uh, maybe what they do in school or what they do outside of school in their own time if they want to get into the field? Yeah, you know, I've been blessed uh, by being able to, you know, be around, communicate with, interview some of the leading neuroscientists uh, and neural engineers uh, in our field, people that I think uh, will be candidates for the Nobel Prize, um, people that have been or will be, uh, you know, inducted in the National Academies, the National Academy of Medicine, the Academy of Engineering, the Academy of Science, some people who've been uh, inducted into more than one or even all three. Um, people like Helen Mayberg, who was a, is a pioneer in the application of deep brain stimulation for treating uh, depression. Um, uh, been able to see for many years, you know, um, through the ups and downs of that um, research track, uh, but to see her perseverance and, and people like her who've worked not just at, you know, building devices to stimulate the brain, but in furthering our understanding of the neural circuitry involved in, in, in mood disorders or in, in, in what you might call a normal um, uh, mood, if there is, if there is such a thing. Um, so what I've discovered is that advances in science and advances in engineering go hand in hand here. Every time there's a, a new device, a new technology, maybe it's a robotic uh, neurosurgical system, or maybe it's a, a new form of lead that can be, you know, injected or implanted. Uh, or maybe it's some new machine learning algorithm or AI technique that can make sense of biomarkers or biosignals drawn from the body or drawn from the brain. Um, every time there's an advance like that, it helps basic scientists, right, further their understanding of what makes us tick, further our understanding of the brain and the nervous system. And, and conversely, as we learn more about the nervous system and how it works, neural engineers are able to use that knowledge to perfect or improve upon therapies uh, that are out there. So, so to answer your question, um, you know, I, like I say, I've been blessed to have had the opportunity to be around people like that, people like Helen Mayberg, people like John Donahue, one of the pioneers of brain computer interface uh, technology um, and many many you know other brilliant uh, brilliant people like that uh, as well as entrepreneurs who've built companies you know uh, using this technology and so where do you where do you meet people like that well you you attend conferences you attend trade shows you attend scientific meetings and a lot of times if, even if you're just a student there's opportunities 
to do that. Um, even undergraduates can can attend if there's one in your town or at your university that's that's coming up. Or if you're a you know if you're a graduate student, uh, a lot of times there's an opportunity to tag along. Um, or maybe you get an opportunity to intern at one of the companies and spend some time in the booth uh, at a trade show, or even just walk the floor and talk to people, um, get a chance to rub shoulders with people. You know, that's maybe not the scientific method, yeah. <laughs> it's the human method. It's, it's the way uh, people's careers get advanced and people's, uh, you know, interests in a particular subject uh, get stimulated. So yes. I've been able to do that over the years. And I think, uh, you know, I guess that's one piece of advice I'd, I'd throw out to any of your viewers, your thousands of viewers who are uh, watching your uh, uh, podcast or, or uh, YouTube videos. All right, very interesting. So it sounds like uh, what uh, the younger audience young scientists need to know is that uh, you've got to open your mouth, <laughs> you got to go places, go outside, go outside the classroom, outside your dorm or outside your apartment and go talk and meet people, right? Talk and Absolutely. So network, net almost network, basically. You might call it networking. You might. Because yep, it's a, I wouldn't call it a business, not, not all of it's a business, but we're, it's a people's business, so to speak. Yes. To meet people. Okay. All right. I love that. Okay, so uh, we've covered this a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about your uh, hero's journey. You're, so you're pretty far into your hero's journey, uh, so to speak. Uh, what would you say you want your impact on the world to be? Golly, um, I don't know. I would say that if someone along the line has said, hey, this publication or this conference uh, that Jim helped put on or, you know, personal meeting that I had with Jim helped me connect with uh, someone meaningful, helped me accomplish something, right? If we could play a role uh, in bringing together um, maybe a researcher and a commercial entity or a researcher and a, you know, an investor, um, if we can help put an end user who has unmet medical needs together, with a new technology that addresses their disability, um, then I'd say that would be a nice legacy to have, to say that we played a role. We helped bring people together. We helped provide uh, the information conduit so that uh, they were able to do it. All right, that sounds like a pretty uh, awesome goal. Okay, all right, so wrap this up. Uh, James, where can we find you? You want to connect with you or do business with you or follow you well you definitely you can find us at our website neurotechreports.com if you're on um linkedin um you can uh, find me there james cavuto um and you can also find me on twitter uh at neurotech writer uh please uh, follow me on twitter and you'll get occasional tidbits of meaningful information or sometimes you know, not so meaningful information, but maybe something funny. Um, and uh, certainly would love to have you attend one of our meetings, the Neurotech Leaders Forum in uh, November 7th and 8th in San Francisco. Uh, or if you're on the East Coast, uh, the Bioelectronic Medicine Forum, 
which is in April in, in, uh, in New York City. Uh, we also attend many, uh, if not most, of the uh, conferences uh, and events in the industry, the International Neuromodulation Society meeting, the North American Neuromodulation Society meeting, which will be in Las Vegas in uh, January, uh, as well as a number of other... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that one sounded interesting. What was that, the, the thing in Las Vegas again? The NANS meeting, North American Neuro, I'm sorry, North American Neuromodulation Society has their meeting uh, in January in uh, Las Vegas, and it's a, it's a great uh, scientific and clinical meeting where um, investigators and doctors uh, and engineers who are helping to build new therapies, new neuromodulation therapies, um, uh, interact and some great sessions. I see. Uh, take place there. I see. Now, all those sound pretty interesting. Uh, what can I find at the Neurotech Leaders Forum? What, what would one find there? Neurotech Leaders Forum is a two-day uh, conference. It's a it's an investment and management conference. So what you're going to find, uh, hopefully, are uh, investors, uh, uh, major players, med, med tech uh, manufacturers, and startups, and a place where they can all congregate, share ideas, discuss problems that are confronting the industry or confronting startups, uh, discuss the current economic situation and what's the likelihood of obtaining funding, what are some techniques, what about getting uh, reimbursement insurance, what, what are some of the things that are going to, you know, be roadblocks, what are some of the things that will help uh, uh, be more successful there, what are, what are some of the new application areas that we, that we should be looking for, uh, you know, what are technology trends or what are technology roadblocks that are going to that we're going to have to watch out for so so those are the types of things we like to discuss we like to keep it lively we have uh some debates sometimes that that, that uh, go on we have interactive panel discussions you know as well as keynote uh, presentations and and uh, um uh presentations from startup companies in the space i see that sounds pretty exciting i'm going to be looking forward to that all right, so uh, I'll put all the links to uh, where you can find James. I'll uh, add his, um, his website and his LinkedIn and his Twitter uh, link to the show notes. And if you're on YouTube, I'll add it to the description. Uh, if you're on TikTok, I'll add it to the comments. Uh, so James, this was pretty uh, awesome and insightful for me. So thank you for being a guest. Thank you, Devin, appreciate it. And uh, please do come join us uh, in San Francisco. If you can make it out in November, we'd love to have you as our guest. Yep, sounds pretty exciting. All right, James, so again, thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of your day. Okay, thank you.